He had a, a strategy that was fine for other parts of the world, but it wasn't going to work for Europe. And so that was one of my other learnings is that maybe in my prior job, I wasn't listening close enough to the needs of the European office. Anyway, what happened was really interesting. And it wasn't even a conscious move at the time of mine, but I'm arguing with him. And I'm realizing around the room, I'm, I'm building advocates and I'm building trust. And at the end of that meeting, I had the leader of Germany, the leader of France, and the leader of the UK, the three largest markets that we had come up and say, man, I'm so glad you're here and I'm so glad you're on our side. You know our business and you're advocating for us in a forceful way. And I was then on the team. Welcome to Bold Breakthroughs. I am thrilled today to bring you Todd Hamlin, CEO of American Research Bureau and Expert Climber. Todd and I became reacquainted discussing his expert climbing and leadership success and then comparing the two. There are precious few people in this world that have managed a billion-dollar business at any time in their career. But even these people face challenges before, during, and after as they move on to other types of businesses like Todd. Todd is surprisingly humble and approachable given his studies at Duke and decades of business success. And Mulcahy said, turnaround or growth? It's getting your people focused on the goal that is still the job of leadership. Todd Hamlin is the kind of mind that knows what it takes to climb over those barriers and create breakthroughs in success. In a minute, we'll get to know Todd Hamlin up on the mountain as an expert mountaineer, then in his business environment, more like the one where he led startups, turnarounds, and a billion-dollar business. Coming up, the great Todd Hamlin. Welcome to Bold Breakthroughs that unstick work and life. I'm Mark Cook, New York Times bestselling innovator. Each week I offer keynotes that engage thousands, and teams embed me weekly to unstick tech pivots, sales prospects, and ops constraints. We roll up our sleeves in small groups to create breakthroughs on top priorities for each individual, in person or via Zoom. Nine global studies of over 2 million successes fueled my 4,000 wins at top brands. I've shared rapid innovation in over 50 cities worldwide. Teams create revenue breakthroughs and clients see new profits. Thank you for listening and inspiring your breakthrough today. Hi, I'm Todd Hamblin. I'm a global business leader, a CEO, and I'd say kind of an amateur mountaineer. I wouldn't be uh, confused for Conrad Aker or some of the great climbers in the world, but I've had some amazing experiences. And I'm here today to tell you a little bit about those. We're talking about leadership and particularly getting to the end goal and making sure that we have clarity on that and that we take all of our team members along the journey so that we can reach our final destination. So one of the amazing experiences that I've had was on Aconcagua. And if you're not familiar with Aconcagua, it's the tallest mountain outside of the Himalaya, uh, the tallest mountain in the Western Hemisphere, almost 23,000 feet. And I had the privilege a few years ago of climbing this great mountain with a group of friends. And we had just an unbelievable experience on that mountain. A few of the things that stand out that have resonated with me and helped me become a better leader were really before our trip even started 
was uh, making sure that we all agreed on the end goal. And you might think that the goal was summiting this incredible mountain, and that was one of our goals. But the ultimate goal was really to get down the mountain safely and back to our families. We're all husbands and fathers and community members, and that was the ultimate goal. And as I tell you this story, you'll understand why that became so important to us. So as we climbed up our mountain, this is a very long trek. It took us about two weeks. It's over 50 miles. We gained over 16,000 vertical feet in elevation. And so as we're trudging along, we're learning, we're growing, we're building trust with each other. We're having an amazing experience in uh, this northwest corner of Argentina. As we eventually made it up to Camp 3, which is just under 20,000 feet, uh, we slept or kind of rested, as you do at that high elevation, and got up at 3 a.m. to begin our summit. We uh, start each morning summit day of asking each other some key questions to make sure our cognitive abilities are still there. These are basic questions anyone can answer. What's your name? You know, what's the, your daughter's name? What's your profession? And you ask that of your teammate to make sure that they're all there and that they're um, able to move forward. And interestingly, uh, an attorney in our group, very bright guy, um, couldn't answer those basic questions. He was really frustrated with himself. He knew what was going on, but when he was asked the question, where are you, he couldn't answer. And so we knew that it was time to get him off the mountain. And so that really put a big crimp in our plans. We had to get him down to uh, the next camp and eventually get a helicopter to take him off the mountain so that he didn't have any more serious consequences. So that took us a few hours. So we, we begin to summit again, and then another team member loses his ability to move forward. And his wasn't necessarily his cognitive ability, but his was that he was dizzy and he just couldn't walk. It was like he was drunk on this high altitude. So we had to turn him around and get him back to Camp 3 safely, where there are others that could watch him and make sure he was okay. Well, this, this put us hours and hours behind our goal. And we needed to make a, a decision there, would we go forward? Uh, with a smaller crew, we were now missing three of our team members, one of our guides and, and two of our team members. And so we decided to move forward, but we did that knowing um, that the consequences had just potentially risen for all of us because we needed to get up and down off that mountain before it got dark. So we made it to the top. We were the last ones that day to summit, which was spectacular for the five of us who were left. Obviously it was amazing to get to the summit and to, uh, take our photos and to enjoy the incredible view from being at almost 23,000 feet. But as all experienced mountaineers know, um, you're only about halfway, right? So, uh, and as we were coming down, another team member had a problem and he just became exhausted. He just couldn't take another step. And so we had to rope him um, to a team member who guided him down with these jelly legs from 23,000 feet back down under 20,000 feet. You're gonna have some unexpected things that happen, but we knew that the end goal was to make sure we got everyone down safely. And so despite these three team members having some pretty severe consequences, we were able to summit many of us and ultimately all of us made it safely off the mountain and reached our ultimate goal. 
to compare this to some of my own personal business experiences, this is like first acquiring the client, right? You, you've got them, but now you need to satisfy them. That product needs to work, you need to deliver your service, and you need to do that consistently until you have a happy, satisfied customer. So with mountaineering, most of the accidents happen actually on the way down, not on the way up. And in business, I think a lot of the problems happen once you have acquired a customer. And so it's important to maintain your focus, stay together as a team, and realize that the end goal is not launching the product or acquiring the customer in the first place, but ultimately in satisfying the customer and creating great customer experiences uh, repeatedly. And so for us, back to our end goal, it was getting back to our families happy, safe, and healthy, so that we can talk about these experiences and share them for many years to come. Todd, it's good to see you again. How are you? I'm good, Mark. How are you? Good. <laughs> we are talking about our careers and our work and even personal stories where we get stuck or we get stalled or mm -hmm. something happens. And then we find interesting, ingenious ways to break through and help others and help our families and ourselves. Was there ever a time early in your career where things were going pretty darn well and, and nothing had happened yet? You were young and, and things were seemed to be going pretty good? Yeah, so that's a great question, Mark. Uh, I absolutely had that experience early in my career. I was with a major technology company. I was in a corporate role where I was working on strategy and product development and was humming right along, doing well, enjoying myself. Um, and then an opportunity arose where one of our uh, geographies, one of our divisions out uh, around the world was not performing well. And uh, our leadership team was looking for someone to help go turn that around. And so that was really the opportunity for me is, do I want to continue in my comfortable, successful role in this uh, corporate job? Or do I want to take a risk and uh, expose myself by jumping into a poorly performing business? Before we talk about that major decision in your family's life, uh, talk to me about the moment where you are humming along. There's a lot of people out in the workforce that have a good job, or maybe it's just a little bit less than they'd hoped, but it's good enough, and so they become comfortable. And the opportunities aren't really taken to do big things. Tell me about the, the, the state of a worker when things are going pretty well for we blink and it's been a few years. Yeah. Well, there's a level of comfort that comes from knowing your job, going through a few cycles, doing this effectively. The problem I think that most of us get into is that uh, we stop growing at the same pace, right? And I've always been one who wanted to challenge myself to continue to grow and to add value. And that required me to take some risk. And so I would say to others who are in this situation uh, that um, almost always it's worth taking that risk to have those little butterflies in your stomach. You're not sure if this is a good career pivot or not. Um, almost always, now that I've made it into more senior roles, as I look at those who are willing to take risks 
learn new things, work in different parts of the business. I admire their courage and I value their broader experience. Well, so, so let's go back before you do those exciting, bold things and talk about literally what was going on in your work when things were okay. So I was working for a global technology company. I was the director of product marketing globally. So my role and my team's role was to analyze the market and competition and come up with smart strategies to grow our product portfolio. It was really fun to do the research and then to work with the engineers to develop the product and then to launch the product into the market and monitor its success. So I was surrounded by very talented people, uh, very bright people, capable people in a variety of roles. It was a wonderful professional setting. Our division was growing very fast and um, I felt good about my career track. And, and where were you? What city? I was in Lexington, Kentucky at the time. That's great. <laughs> and so how did you find about, out about this announcement that there is this problem division that needs new leadership? On a monthly basis, we would go in-depth as to how our business was performing. So we'd start at the macro level and how, how were we doing as a company and how was each division performing. And so as, you, as we began to look into divisional performance, we realized, or I quickly realized being a spectator in those meetings, that there was one division that was really struggling. And they had been struggling for a couple of years. And they had tried different types of leaders and different types of strategies. And it just became what our division president called a trouble spot. What, what were they doing literally? What part of the uh, business were they doing? So they were responsible for selling all of our goods to resellers and retailers throughout a region of the world. So they were the sales, marketing, finance, and operational functions that were representing our products in that part. And what kind of products are we talking about? These were all technology products, uh, you know, computer-related technologies uh, that enabled both home and small businesses to be more productive. What happened when you saw that? What was going on in your mind, that, that, that final report that things were not going well in that particular group? Well, you always feel for your colleagues when things aren't going well. It's it's rarely either one person's fault or you know even a, you know it could be market dynamics. It could be other things. So my my first feeling was a bit of empathy. I knew these people. I supported them, and uh, so I felt for them. Uh, but as the leadership team began after these uh, reviews that we'd have started talking about what to do, I realized that quite quickly they were going to ask someone to go and help turn this business around. And so when you heard that, what was the internal dialogue that you were having with yourself? What was the conversation <laughs> you had privately in your mind? Yeah, that was an interesting conversation. I thought, well, I, I'm good at what I'm currently doing. My family's settled in this beautiful city of Lexington, Kentucky. Should I 
should I take this risk, right? Uh, I hadn't been on the front lines operating in this company yet. I knew I could do the corporate strategy and the product strategies and understand competition and meet the needs of, of customers. But this was a very different role they were talking about. It was much more on the front lines and interacting with retailers and driving programs and products and promotions on a daily and weekly basis through a region of the world that I had never lived in and, and didn't know intimately. And, and what was the dialogue like with your family at home or your friends? Well, you know, the first, I think, reaction was, why would you take a risk, right? Why would you do something that seems to have maybe more risk than reward to it? But there was also an element in those dialogues of that sounds like a very, really interesting business opportunity and it sounds like an interesting personal opportunity to go and live in a different part of the world. So there were, there were different schools of thought, uh, I think, within my own mind and also with those that I was uh, talking about the opportunity with. And you're married and you have kids, right? Yeah, married with kids. We had three kids at the time. And um, so that was a factor, right? With three young kids, how would they do? How would my wife do living in a foreign country? Uh, is that a, a challenge that she was willing to take on? That was a big part of our decision. And I know she's successful in her own right. I mean, what, was she excited to go? It was a, it, was it a European city? Yeah, it was a European city. And, and maybe for some that would make it a little easier. It was, uh, was mo she, moving was to Paris, France. Uh, and uh, so for me and my wife, that was a, a very intriguing part of the offer. Uh, Paris is one of, truly one of the great cities in the world. Uh, but living in any large city with, that speaks a foreign language and has a very different culture and different uh, processes. And, uh, you know, it, we had to really think through how we could live and operate as a family, not just me doing the business. That was the easy part, really. It was how do you, how do you manage with three little kids? And we had a fourth, ultimately, when we got there. Um, how do we manage that uh, in this phase of our life? And they would have to either go to an American school or learn some French, right? Exactly. And, and yeah, and, and so we, you know, a lot of expats decide to live in a community of expats with the American school in the area. And that's usually just a really wonderful experience. And I had a lot of friends and even a cousin who was having that experience at the time. So I had a lot of people to talk to to say, why did you choose to, to set this up the way you have? Um, we chose to do it the opposite. We lived right in the heart of Paris, put our kids in French language schools. We wanted them to have as authentic an experience as possible. And we wanted to get to know this beautiful city. And that was one of the best decisions that we made. It really helped our kids to feel part of this new country. Uh, and it helped my wife and I to embrace and love this spectacular city. So the love of your life decides, let's <laughs> go, let's do this. You do it that way. Uh, I've heard from medical doctors, both psychologists and, and neurologists, that going into a brand new culture where everything is brand new, uh, the details are, and you've decided to go authentic. You've decided to really expose them to the language too, and not just expatriates, but the, the locals. 
that must have been a challenge. Yeah, I think it's always a challenge. And so there were some bumps along the road, for sure. Um, making sure that my family was growing and maturing and assimilating was a big part of what I was trying to do each and every week. I was able to go and work with colleagues on a business that I understood. And while the work was challenging uh, and required a lot of my energy, I'd say the harder part was my family feeling like this was home. So I think for the first part of any experience like that, you're, you're feeling a little bit like a tourist that is <laughs> on an extended vacation. But over time, you realize, oh, I can get this. You start to pick up a little bit on the language. You understand which shops to go to. You begin to make friends. And as those things happen slowly, month by month, uh, we became um, really European citizens. And it was uh, really a, a highlight of our life. If you had to pinpoint just maybe two things that were essential in making that cultural shift, uh, what, do you, what do you think they were? What did you guys act on? Well, the, the first thing was to understand that we couldn't bring our, our American attitudes. Um, and so American and British tourists um, are looked at in, in a funny way among Parisians because they come across as so rude and abrupt. So we had to understand how to work within the Parisian culture. That was critical, how to address people, uh, how to thank them, how to ask for a moment of their time, right? All these little nuances were critical for us. And then really to try and embrace newness as, uh, as good, not, not, not embracing change as a negative, but embracing change as a positive for us and saying, yeah, that's different. <laughs> I'm not used to doing it that way, but uh, okay, I'm going to try it and see how it goes. And well, we didn't like everything better, but there were a lot of things that we adopted as we adopted the Parisian lifestyle that we have kept to this day because it's just a better way to live your life. Interesting, interesting. <laughs> so let's go over to the business side. So describe the pit that you arrived to witness in that team. There was there must have been morale and obviously contacts and clients leaving yeah. or something. Give us a vivid description of that that, that hole that you were yeah, about but, to climb out. Yeah, the, the main problem that I um, that I entered into is that we our profit margins were the lowest in the world, um, and so there were theories that I was given as I took this job as to what was causing the, those issues, um, and I listened to those theories. Uh, but really, what I did my first three months on the job is I went very deep into every aspect of the business. And I created some allies within the business to go on this journey with me of really discovering truly what's happening to our business and why we aren't getting the results that were expected of us or that it were even projected. And so it was that deep discovery with a few core teammates on the European management team that made all the difference because we had to understand what wasn't working in order to pivot to what could work in the future. Yeah. So to, to identify the current status, was was it really about sourcing or was it discounts being given? I mean, what 
What was the actual cause of those low profits? Yeah, part of it was that we were over-discounting our products. Uh, part of it was that uh, we were focused on our least profitable products in our portfolio. So I had, to, I had to educate the team as to which products brought in the most profitability. Uh, part of it was um, not being aligned uh, so we would have one country going in one direction and another country going in another direction. So you can imagine this is a group of countries that are working together and everyone has their own challenges. But at the end of the day, we needed to align around some central priorities and strategies. Once we were able to identify and align on those, then we were able to leverage the strength of our corporate programs and products to help every country. And prior to that, they were only getting bits and pieces country by country, so no individual country was doing as well as they could do. Mm. So before you discovered all that, what were some of the guesses and rumors and, and excuses that you were hearing uh, from the existing team as to why you had low profit? Yeah, I think there were two prevailing theories. One was that we were, uh, we were just discounting, over-discounting everything to get volume, and that was um, hurting our margins. And there was some truth to that. The second was that in our annuity stream, we uh, weren't getting the usage. So the uh, consumers and the small businesses that we were attracting were not using our product to the level we thought, so we weren't getting the annuity stream down the road. And uh, so they, they, we called that our, you know, our financial model on our annuity stream. And there were theories that that was just there was something fundamentally broken in that. So I had to really go deep and peel that, look at macroeconomic factors as well as specific business factors uh, to understand actually that the model wasn't broken, that there were a few tweaks that we could make and we would get right on track, back on track with the model. Hmm. Um, so what were the conversations like? You have these team members uh, there, there's various problems that were reality and, and rumored, and you have to have difficult conversations, and they're varied conversations. Tell me about a couple of those that were very different and, and what, how difficult they yeah. were. Yeah, so I think the first step I needed to take, Mark, was to earn their trust, right? Mm -hmm. I'm this guy that's sent over from the corporate office. Am I on their team or am I on the corporate office team? So I spent quite a bit of time my first few months earning their trust and letting them know I am on your team. We are on this together. And there was one critical moment in a meeting about two months into my time there where my replacement uh, in the corporate office came over with our division president and other bigwigs, and they were pitching the future strategy to us. I knew this stuff cold, right? That was my old job. And I laid into him and told him all the reasons why that wouldn't work for the European division. It sounds like he was, <laughs> he was being pretty forceful about it if you're laying into him. Did he come over and just micromanage? Well, he had a, a strategy that was fine for other parts of the world, but it wasn't going to work for Europe. Mm -hmm. And so that was one of my other learnings is that maybe in my prior job, I wasn't listening close enough to the needs of the European office. Anyway, what happened was really interesting. And it wasn't even a conscious move at the time of mine, but I'm arguing with him. And I'm realizing around the room, I'm 
I'm building advocates and I'm building trust. And at the end of that meeting, I had the leader of Germany, the leader of France, and the leader of the UK, the three largest markets that we had come up and say, man, I'm so glad you're here and I'm so glad you're on our side. You know our business and you're advocating for us in a forceful way. And I was then on the team. That's so great. <laughs> That's great. I, it, it's, it's also the case that people get in something similar, a, a similar situation where they come in and they are the know-it-all. Instead of having someone come over and defend from the know-it-all, you come and you are the know-it-all. And I know that one gentleman that I, that I worked with briefly, he went to work for Nike and he'd been at McKinsey, he'd been at Harvard, he'd been at MIT. I mean, he was the smartest of the smart that's what Nike gets to attract. And, and uh, he'd had three predecessors that actually had very short stays in his role there. And he committed to listen for six months as much as possible. It was, was Maybe it's a leading question, but was that a little bit of your strategy as listening oh, more yeah. than... Yeah, ab- absolutely. I think that's uh, that's wonderful, uh, a wonderful point that you raise. And that's... So the other part... So that was one moment that'll stick out forever in my mind is is that that moment with the with the corporate team coming over and me advocating for our local needs the other was that i went in market every few weeks i was in germany i was in the french market i was right there it was easy i was i would fly to london and i would meet with customers i would meet with the team and i listened and i understood much better after a few months what their pain points were and how we might be able to solve them. So as I gathered all of that input, I was building credibility with the team. And then the second pivotal moment for me was I got those three leaders together from the largest countries and the four of us went to dinner and I just talked about what I had heard and how I thought we could move forward. And that aligned us in a new way. They, they had always struggled with aligning. They, were, they just, the German team was always doing their own thing or the French team was always doing their own thing. And that was critical that I get those three major countries and leaders aligned. And it required me to show that I was on their team and it required me to listen and understand their specific needs. What, what was the nature of the conversation at that dinner? Was it a negotiation? Was it a discussion? Was it a you describing what you knew to be true? What, what was the nature of it? Yeah, well, it was, it was not long after that pivotal meeting with the, with the corporate team coming over. And so I'd already earned a little bit of credibility. Um, and, and then it was just a dialogue. It was, it was me saying, here are my observations. What are your thoughts? So it was very much a discussion with the four of us. I was gathering input and they were commenting on each other's businesses because these are very bright people. They had listened to their challenges uh, for years. And so they knew each of the businesses uh, quite well. Um, and so it was that dialogue until we reached ultimately a consensus as to how we were collectively going to take that business forward. And my predecessors hadn't done that, right? They had never aligned with the key leaders of the business. They had always tried to impose from a central point how they thought they should um, move the business forward. And there wasn't alignment with the, with the key countries. 
a little more top-down command and control, and and yeah. you tried to be I mean, part of it. Sometimes that can work, but uh, it wasn't working in our European division. That's yeah. for sure. But you said something else that's really key. I think how you went into market and talked to the customers and and, and dug deeper into their minds. Not all even high-level leaders do that. Talk about some of those interactions with customers and what you learned. Yeah, so what I ask each team to do is line up two or three meetings with your most important customers. And so when we went in, um, we went in talking about the direction of our company, but also listening to their needs. And I think when I did that side by side with my the president of Germany or the president of France, we became more of a team during that moment. And then we were both listening. We were asking questions, trying to discover uh, exactly what it was that their strategy was. We had done our homework, so we knew how to ask good leading questions as to how our strategy could better align with their needs and their strategies. So they were really, um, they were really effective meetings because we had prepared properly. We understood directionally where each of them were going, and we signaled to them that we were going to help them with their specific strategies moving forward. So we weren't pitching our own strategy. We were pitching in the context of their strategy. Mm, Brilliant. So success comes in stages. First step where you knew something was heading now in the right direction. What what was that? Yeah, well, I think it was when suddenly... um, I started to see our teams, country by country, align on selling the right products. And so I saw the demand rising, the activity rising, and I knew that that was a leading indicator to our future success. So it was that, you know, it was probably four or five months in that I saw this pivot from selling whatever was easiest or cheapest to selling the most strategic set of products. And once we started clicking in the second half of that year, uh, then I knew we were on the right track. So then it was just building from there. We had a baseline, a foundation to build from, is to build on that to take the other things that were really important globally for for our company and bring them into the European division. And once we were able to build on that foundation, we went from being the worst performing geography to being the best performing geography. In fact, I'll never never forget uh, about two years into this assignment, I had an update where I was updating our division president, our global president on how our business was doing. And I went slide by slide and category by category, and he wasn't saying anything. (laughs) And so I paused after the fourth or fifth topic, and I said, I said, are are you with us still? How are you feeling about this? And he's like, well, what do you want me to say? Great job on every slide. I mean, you guys are killing it. So I knew then that he was just thrilled with the direction of the business and that he was was trying to look for ways to add value because the team had aligned and we were knocking it out of the park on every key strategy that our corporate office wanted us to hit on. Yeah, I think, you know, employees really psychologically need appreciation and recognition once a week, but maybe not every slide. 
<laughs> I wanted it every slide, but I wasn't. We all do. It. We all do. Everyone wants that. The, the disparity is great. Okay, what, one other question about this particular part of your your work life. Um, you know, success comes in waves, and the undertow happens before another success happens. There had to be a moment where you're with your wife and. And you two are talking, and the kids uh, are maybe in the back fighting or something. <laughs> what, what was the undertow moment where you thought, "Wow, have you re- have we really done the right thing here? Are you are you doing okay? What, what, what was that like?" I'd say, well, you know, that was probably early on still, where our um, our business hadn't turned. So I'm working all these extra hours. I'm traveling to meet with customers. I'm doing this extra analysis. I'm flying to our corporate office every month. I was burning it at both ends of the candle. And I realized my wife was going through that same experience, just trying to assimilate. And so having that that moment where we realized, you know, this track that we're on is, is not sustainable and we need to rally together. And so I, I turned down a little bit of my travel and helped with the family and and that moment of us just coming together and embracing what was in front of us and not being frightened by it, um, I think cha- that change in mindset made all the difference for us. And so we went through the experience together and we began enjoying the, the new challenges of our, of our different life as opposed to being frightened by them. Yeah, yeah, that's the most important teamwork, obviously. Um, I know you're an experienced mountaineer, and uh, as you look back on that first experience, what are some of the uh, analogies specifically to that experience that that you may draw from leading that team? Yeah, well, I'd say that you know when you're mountaineering or when you're turning a business around, you, you really have to have your eyes wide open and have some respect for what's happening and what's going to happen. So that that deep analysis that I went through in trying to understand the current state of the business was a lot like preparing to take on a new mountain. You have to do your research and understand what are the challenges, what have been the challenges for the others? What type of equipment might I need? What type of weather patterns are typical on this mountain? Just really doing your homework to understand how best to approach and hopefully embrace the challenges that will inevitably present themselves so that you're not thrown by them, uh, but you say, okay, yeah, there's this big storm that's happening either in our business or on the mountain, but I'm ready. I've thought this through. I have the protection. I know now what to do because I've thought this through. So with that ability to properly prepare for the moment, do your homework, that gives you a lot of peace of mind, whether you're going through a business challenge or a challenge at 20,000 feet. It's excellent, excellent. It's a, it's a great analogy, actually. You know, you can see the idea that you experienced in, in the analogy when, when if you think you know the Mountaineer headquarters <laughs> and you come to a whole different European peak or even some other peak, and you attack it the same way with overconfidence, thinking you know how to do this, and you're not respecting the new situation, the yeah. new challenge you face. That seems like a really bad approach. And yet, preparation and getting to know yourself. 
You know, three of the ways uh, to do your homework that I found in my work that are helpful, you've discussed a couple of them. First, digging deeper within the mind of the customer, finding out what, what you're really struggling with there, both business-wise and innately as humans. And, and then second of all, making new contacts. You clearly created a broader base within your own team, went out to the customer's developed relationships, but also went on site, which is a third key essential element. You really have to go get your senses into the space of the problem, the spaces and the places of the customer where they buy and they use and really understand that. Any of those highlight this experience before I ask you about the next? Yeah, I I think those are are really pivotal. And I would say just uh, building on that third, being on site. One of the things that I did is I hired uh, one of the best researchers, external researchers I've ever worked with in my life. And we went into the aisle and watched the behavior of consumers to understand how they were selecting products. How much homework had they done before they arrived there? How did the layout of the shelf impact them? How did the color of the boxes or the messages on the boxes, how important was price versus brand versus features and all these things. So actually being on site, not just with the reseller of our products, but actually at the moment of truth where someone was making a decision, understanding that deeply was pivotal for me to build that credibility and go back and make changes to our product offering and our messaging and our um, packaging so that we could take advantage of this new knowledge. Yeah, it's a beautiful example. Um, You know, understanding your clients, customers in their space, where that decision is being made. Another thing that it sounds like really, you you really studied with this research team that you put together and assembled to do that was, while maybe it wasn't a multi-million dollar, multi-year ethnography project, it's more like becoming a photojournalist. You get the videos and the cameras out and you see everything and you capture everything. And it's not just about the intellectual learning, it's about the emotional learning, not just of the customer and how they make a decision and what they see and what they don't see, but those that get involved with that and then see what you bring back, the data and the research and the ideas that come from that, all of that becomes very visceral and people get more determined and passionate about what has to happen, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's very different bringing a research project to a team of engineers where you've been in aisle with customers, hundreds of customers in different countries, and you show them their behavior. That's very different than taking those customers out of that decision-making moment and putting them around a table in a focus group. And that's all we had done prior to that. So this pivot in research methodology added a ton of credibility to the insights that I was able to bring to the engineering team. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of continuing through my model and going to how you converged on the priorities and attacked them, I want to I ask you about your personal work situation. This experience was a great experience. It must have prepared you to do something as you, you've gone from last to best in the whole international organization, uh, the whole organization, which is a global organization. And you did it. You took that leap. You took the challenge and left mediocrity and status quo 
to do something big and bold and create this breakthrough, and you did it, that, that you, you foresaw that that would lead to something. What did it lead to? Well, immediately, um, late in my, in my third year, they had asked me first to go for two years and see if I could turn this around. The company was so happy, and by that time, my family was so happy, we, we all decided, decided to make a third year out of it. Uh, during the, that third year, I got a call from this division president that I mentioned earlier that was so happy with the way things were going, and he said, Todd, I want you to come run our largest division, right? Which was North America at the time. And it was a billion dollar PL. This was a huge opportunity for me. And one that definitely would not have presented itself had I stayed in my prior job because I didn't have the credibility of being on the front line, managing all these different functions, being part of that leadership team that was driving wonderful success. So taking that risk, working closely with the European team and turning the business around opened up opportunities for me that would not have presented themselves prior to that. So the rest of us here, okay, you got promoted, <laughs> billion dollar P&L, and you lived happily ever after. But it's not that <laughs> totally easy. Wish. Yeah, it wasn't that easy. There had to be some fork in the road, some sticking point, some challenge, some obstacle, uh, because that's a big that's a big challenge. What, what, what were the big challenges? Yeah. So what was interesting is I came back uh, and uh, to the U.S. and started running the North American geography. Uh, not long into that new position, our division as a whole globally started. Um, feeling intense margin pressure. And that was a market issue. It wasn't just an issue for the company I was with. It was all the companies. It had become too competitive. There were too many players vying for the customer. And so margins were eroding rapidly. And over the course of the next few years, I, w I assumed additional leadership roles so that at some point I was running the entire division from a sales standpoint. So the opportunities kept presenting themselves and I kept getting promoted, but I got to the top of that ladder and then that ladder ultimately <laughs> was the wrong ladder to climb in my company because that business was no longer sustainable. And I found myself at a moment where I had to say, Am I going to leave this business or am I going to take another risk, probably a bigger risk, in pivoting from B to C to B to B? And I chose the latter and it made all the difference. What, why? Let's back up a little bit and, and tell me why the, the ladder was on the wrong wall. Like what, what was the problem with, what was the dead end? Well, the dead end was that the division, um, because of the eroding margins, was not interesting uh, to be part of the corporate portfolio. And so over time, we were just managing out of that business and we're trying to sell it. So there was no career path staying in that division because it was something that we were phasing out of. And so I, that's where uh, um, the majority of my colleagues pivoted out and stayed in B2C technology and just went to a different firm. I was one of two leaders that went from the B to C side to the B to B side in a senior leadership role. Um, but I had 
a whole new set of challenges. I was sitting around a table with people that looked at me as the consumer guy. What do you know about business? How do any of your experiences or skills possibly translate to this corporate world? I felt confident in my abilities, but I didn't have a lot of support around the table. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I've spent most of my career in business to business, and we have a little bit of an, an arrogance that you described, <laughs> which, which is ironic because all of the big stocks, all of the big successes in the economy are always B to C. It's just how the math works uh, when you're investing in something usually. Uh, the, the other thing that's interesting is that you were the perfect person to really identify how big a challenge that was. You'd gone through this experience where margins and profit were the issue and you had to turn them around and do all this work with your sleeves rolled up in different countries of the world, on site, in aisle, and, and you really analyzed the data and you knew at that point, how to manage profit margin in a very active way. So here you're in this new role, and as the market keeps shifting and shifting and everyone's working, and I'm sure you too, you, you had to know this is untenable. This margin is not going to hold up, and the world is just changing. Yeah. So what now? Yeah, so it was interesting. So I pivoted into this business-to-business -business world, and I have to earn my stripes again, right? In, in many ways, I was knocked down multiple rungs. Even though my title was still good, I, I needed to earn the credibility of my immediate boss and of my peers because I was moved over largely because of the CEO. And he had confidence in me. He had worked directly with me for years. And these others, I was placed at their table as an outsider. And so um, I had to earn that credibility step by step. I had to take a few assignments to show them I'm willing to do whatever you need to, to build this business at whatever level. And so one of those was taking another international assignment and actually working for someone that was a colleague of mine. When I, when I moved in. And some would say, well, that's a big step back. Why are you doing that? I, I could see the end game here. And if I didn't go and earn that credibility again, I was never going to be part of that core team. So I was willing to go and take another assignment and be on the front lines. And this time, not sell consumer products, but sell large contracts to the largest entities in the country I was managing and sell services and software on top of that. Well, what did you find the biggest difference between selling to a, a, a huge reselling set of organizations, selling consumer items, uh, and then getting into kind of the bureaucratic committee purchase of business to business? What, what did you find the biggest challenge and difference was? Well, I think the biggest difference that I observed was the length of the sales cycle, right? It, it just these big decisions where they went out for a, an RFP, a request for a proposal. And so you're preparing that for months, you're 
pitching it, you're negotiating. Uh, that sales cycle was a lot longer on the B2B side. Um, I don't think in the end it was any more complex. You just had to, you had to do the same things. You had to identify the decision makers. You had to understand your competition. You had to differentiate yourself in very meaningful ways in the eyes of the decision makers. You had to assemble a great team around yourself to make that happen, leverage all of your resources. And then at the end of the day, you had to make gut calls as to how, how are we ultimately going to get a yes. And each account is a little bit different. And so understanding those things really aren't that different selling to a major retailer in any part of the world versus a major business. The titles might be a little different. The sales cycle might be a little bit different. But ultimately, it's still understanding what your consumer needs, what your business needs, and pitching that in a way that is differentiated in a meaningful, compelling way for the buyer. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I, I think another factor that's interesting, the, the long selling cycles in, in business to business are sometimes calendar and business their business cycle related, but there is just this strange collaborative uh, mire that you get stuck in. You know, you've got six, seven people that need to weigh in on the decision before anyone will make the final call because that's just how it works. And they do just practical, tactical things. They're busy and they don't get together and the meeting gets canceled because someone goes on vacation. And it's just the scheduling and the communication lag of coordinating more than four people that's, yeah. that's a social problem. So it seems like your experience previously where you're garnering you know, the, the core group of your three company leaders you, you, you may have had some learning there where you had a talent of kind of coordinating people and getting them to coordinate and collaborate with each other, not just with yeah. you. Is any of that true? Yeah, you know, I think, I think that's, a, that's a good observation is um, bringing together uh, the people that are ultimately going to make the difference. So when I pivoted to the business-to-business side, the first was bringing together the internal team that was going to, you know, enable us to have success. And that required hiring and developing, promoting the right people on my immediate team, and also drawing on other resources throughout the corporation. So I was not shy in going to our corporate office since I had lived and worked there for most of my career and drawing upon those resources. I think that was a real differentiator for me, being a country manager, running a business in a country. Most of those country managers, really none other than myself, had had that time at the corporate office and really knew the superstars that could come in and make a difference. So I assembled that all-star team internally, and then I had to understand who that was on the other side. And I had a really interesting experience selling to a major entity. This was the health system for an entire province, right? This was the largest entity that we were trying to sell our services to in my three years running that business. Um, They were so divided internally that we had to have meetings with their teams separately. One team 
give our pitch, answer all their questions, and then we had to have it with the other team because they just could not be in the same room and they just could not get along with each other. So understanding how to do that efficiently and effectively without playing favorites, making sure that both teams were moving with us was really a difficult exercise because I didn't want anyone feeling like we were playing favorites to the other. I wanted them both to feel like we were listening to them and meeting their needs and catering to them. So that was a difficult dance, but with my all-star team, with an, with a, an exceptional partner that we had lined up locally, um, that made all the difference in having the crucial conversations at the right moments that we needed to. That's right. Just uh, just being able to be kind and professional and and just acting like that's fine that we have to do it this way. We'll just do it that way. It's great. Exactly. Yeah. There was an interesting moment in, in this sales cycle where I literally one night, I kept waking up during the night feeling like something's wrong. It's the only time in my career I've had this happen. I couldn't sleep. And, in the, and I woke up early in the morning and I called our partner and I said, you are there locally. You need to get in. I was thousands of miles away. You need to get in and immediately meet with the highest level person you can and ask them where they are in their decision-making pro- process. And they went in and they had already made a decision to go with one of our competitors. Mm-hmm. But because of that crucial conversation, before they had made that public, our partner was able to turn that around. We repositioned ourselves in the eyes of the, of the key decision makers. And ultimately, they pivoted and chose us and two weeks later announced us as the winner. So what was critical about that is having a gut feel for how the sales cycle is going and having a partner that has, or someone on your team or yourself, that has the individual personal relationships where they can kind of go behind the scenes and get the real story. Yeah, you know, one of the critical things about, you've been in technology and, and so you're, you're no stranger to innovation. And, and one of the critical ways to use innovation as a tool in a sales situation mm-hmm. is after you've gone to all of these places you've described, and created the pile of ideas and and possibilities to now not just diverge, but converge on the priorities. So in that situation where you'd lost it for a second, what what were maybe the two key priorities, the two most important things to focus on to get that deal to swing the other way? It was a complex situation. It was a government entity, so they had to be very careful with their decision-making, be as public as possible with it. Uh, So the first thing was helping them to understand that our proposal actually would employ more people locally than our competitors. So understanding that took a little bit of time, but we were able to help them as an entity make a good decision locally for the workforce within their province. Uh, The second was to understand that we had some unique offerings that were embedded in our company that we could offer that they couldn't. And so our ability to accelerate those 
strategic software bundles into their processes to make them more efficient and effective. And to do that with our local partners made a big difference in their mind. They could then see, not only am I doing good locally for the economy, but I'm also accelerating our strategic priorities and gaining efficiency and improving the patient experience. Well, it, it sounds like uh, going to an unfamiliar mountain again, you know, the, the standard salesperson pitching the strengths and even differentiators of your offering wouldn't be enough in that situation. They'd already gone the other way. <laughs> so it's all about, hey, we can get those local employment situations improved and then we can get on, on the other side, the competitor that maybe they're going towards, the right differentiator that also invol involves some local preference and really connecting with what they really needed, not your standard pitch, right? Yeah, so it, it went beyond the core offering because in the end with technologies, there's a lot that's the same as much as we like to think that it's different. <laughs> it's this, you know, one of uh, the guys I worked with, it's, it's all the same cake mix. That's what he'd always say. And, and so there was, there's some truth to that, right? So then how do you truly differentiate yourself? It wasn't that our machine went two pages a minute faster or something like that. It was all about here is, this is going to change your workflow. This is going to save your nurses time. This is going to improve the patient experience. So once again, getting deep into really the pain points and the opportunities that we had with the specific customer and articulating them as differentiators. And so once they understood that, they actually selected us at a price premium to our competitors. Okay, just a couple more things. This is a really great story. Se separating this um, this this video into three parts. I'm going to insert our time on the mountain together in, in your advice. For this last second opportunity, what what uh, connections could you make with that analogy with leading this new big assignment? On the mountain or or in you know in that critical moment in a sales cycle, there's some some moments of truth, right? Critical moments where you have to make the right decision. You've done all the preparation, uh, you but you are now on the mountain, right? Or you're in the moment where a decision is going to be made and drawing deeply upon your, your best resources, collaborating with that team that you've assembled around you and being as creative as you can to meet the needs of that situation, right? So each sales opportunity is going to have a little different flavor to it, right? Some different challenges or opportunities. It's understanding the nuances of those that can make all the difference. Same thing on the mountain, understanding when you should turn around, understanding when you should, you really need to pay attention to a team member who's struggling, understanding when your equipment needs some revision and you need to pause and, and uh, take stock of that and, and get another layer on and get your crampons on and get your ice axes out, understanding when to utilize the tools that you've assembled, you've prepared well, but knowing how to use, utilize those tools in a business setting or on the mountain are very similar. 
Yeah, and we talked about up there, we talked about getting everyone home, uh, the success of the team, customer delight, not just satisfaction. In this particular second story, what did that look like? Did, it, did that go okay? So we were able, fortunately, to um, convince the customer that we ultimately, with our partner, were the best choice long-term for their needs. Uh, and then we went through this long adoption process of our technology and our services. And like, like a mountain, you know, the, we were at the summit when they made the decision. And the hardest part was actually implementing all these new strategies and these new tools. So it took a, a real large effort from our local team and from our corporate team to make that happen. But ultimately, is it was a wildly successful program that benefited our customer and our business in new, unprecedented ways. And even your teammates, probably. Absolutely. So um, just to, to finish up here, you know, these are gr two great stories of bold breakthroughs. I want to set them aside and just ask you, uh, you, you've talked a little bit about having to garner the cred, the credibility of teams. Uh, just for the audience, I, I think your resume is impressive. What is, what is, you, you're, you own your own company, you're, you're now in a startup with a, uh, another company, I and mean, you've turned very entrepreneurial, um, benefiting customers and your own team and yourself and your family. And, uh, but, but in your career, you know, we are often impressed by the big numbers. Uh, what, what's the big company in your career that you're with and the big p and certainly probably that billion dollar one. Well, what's the big title, big station, big company that you've been with in your career so we know who you are a little bit? Yeah, so I'd say my biggest title was, you know, the chief marketing officer um, for a leading technology company, right? We had 13,000 employees. We had, a, at one point, an almost $6 billion P&L that we were running. And so I, after these experiences that I've described, I, um, I became, ultimately was rewarded with being um, in the C-suite and being a chief marketing officer. That's awesome. And it, and it was a, a consumer product, uh, productivity, laptops, uh, the things like th that serve that kind of a right, space. Right, exactly. Personal yeah. and business productivity. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Hey, um, so what... The last question is that I'd like to ask is, is what, do you, what is your single piece of advice for someone who maybe is facing one of those forks in the roads or they're even stuck? And what is your second piece of advice for not just getting out of it, but creating a big, bold breakthrough? Yeah, I would say um, for me, the big difference in my life has been taking calculated risks. I've done this... Um, within multiple companies, and I've done it between companies and industries. And as I thought about the logic of doing it, there was part of me that said, I, I can stay comfortable, I can make a good living and you know, have a good life on my current trajectory. But in the end, I realized I wouldn't have taken advantage of all the opportunities that presented themselves to me to have these amazing business and life experiences. So whenever you go, you stretch yourself and you go into a, a new role, uh, for me, it was not just about the business 
experience, but it was about me growing as an individual. And invariably, as I took on these new assignments and was in different parts of the world, I found that my personal life was equally challenging and rewarding as I was stretching myself to learn cultures and languages and to serve locally uh, the people of the community that I was in. And so I got very involved with local community projects and that made a big difference for me. So I would encourage you to not only take a risk in getting involved in new opportunities within your career, within your company or a new company, but also take a risk in extending yourself into the community and finding ways that you can add value. And for me and my family, that combination of extending ourselves taking risks, taking on new challenges and, and rewards uh, made all the difference and has helped us to have a very rich life. Awesome. Todd, I just want to thank you for sharing all this insight with my audience and soon to be your audience. And uh, I really appreciate the lessons of making consideration of those around you and the customers that you serve and digging deep and learning everything about them so that you can execute and get them down the mountain. It's been a great morning with you, and I look forward to seeing you again. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate your time. I hope you liked listening to Todd Hamlin as much as I enjoyed speaking to him. And I want to thank Todd one more time for sharing with us his very personal career choices and mountaineering leadership lessons for work and life. Susan Oki Baker, an expert climber and author, points out for the mediocre, mountaineers are one of the few groups to celebrate before the finish line. More mountaineers die on the descent than on the ascent. May we heed Todd and Susan's advice to take responsibility for the success and safety of everyone we serve and all those that we lead by focusing on clients, customers, contacts, teammates, and all their families. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And if you enjoyed it, please share this episode with a friend that needs a breakthrough. Post this on social media and add my website, or tag my YouTube page, or just text markspencercook.com to a friend or message that link on Instagram right now. Also, Make sure to subscribe on my site at markspencercook.com to stay up to date on all the latest advice on how to unstick priorities to create breakthroughs. I'm so grateful that you listened today. And remember, you have people rooting for you. They love you and want you to make your breakthrough. That includes us too. Take the first step. Now, you know what time it is. It's time to go create a breakthrough for your work in life. We'll see you there.